This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, we're going to uh, we're going to begin again talking about the Holy Spirit. We're dealing more specifically with the necessity of the Spirit. Uh, some of you are asking, you know, what do we do to get your notes? A uh, couple things you can do. One is if you email us at Amazing Facts, and my address, if you want to get a request to me, or you can just go to the Amazing Facts website where it says Contact Us and say we'd like to get a copy of Pastor Doug's notes on the Holy Spirit from this presentation. Um, we'll, we can send you a digital file of these notes that I'm using. I'm sorry, I've only got one printed out here. Uh, but you can download them. And you'll find, actually, there's a, a DVD presentation on the Holy Spirit. I think it's got one or two or three parts that's at the Amazing Facts website uh, that can also be downloaded. Um, and it'll have a lot of the same content. Of course, truth about the Holy Spirit hasn't changed, so I've been sharing some of the same things for years. And um, let's pray again before we begin. Father, we just want to also focus our minds once again on your presence, on our earnest desire to have the Holy Spirit in our minds, in our hearts, in our midst, Lord. We often talk about it in theory and we might dissect the doctrine, but Lord, we want to experience that joy, that peace, that love of your presence in our minds as a living, vital reality. Help that be our experience. Be with each person here. And I pray that they will feel an increase of your spirit working in their lives during our time together through this weekend. So we thank you and we pray this believing because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember a few years ago, I was in um, Stavropol, Russia. With, uh, we had uh, a medical group that went with us. It was actually my wife and I. Uh, Stephen wasn't even born at that point, so this was like 20 years ago. Iron Curtain had recently fallen. A number of Adventist evangelists quickly went to Russia where there had been no evangelism for 70 years. And we were the first team. Uh, it was us and a team of uh, a family, four doing the medical presentations. Went to a big hall in this town called Stavropol. It's where Mikhail Gorbachev is from. And it was just phenomenal to uh, see the interest in, in the Bible. One thing we saw when we were in town, we rode the buses around town, and their buses are like the cable cars in this town. The bus had an electric engine. This town had plenty of power from nuclear sources, I believe. And so they had lots of electricity, and the whole bus grid in the city was run by electricity. And the way they did it is they had these electric buses. There were wires electric high-power wires all over the town just above the streets. And the buses had a bar, just a simple bar, that would, or maybe a couple bars, that would make contact with these wires as they rode along. And they were spring-loaded. So these bars went up and they were pressing gently against the springs. And as long as they made contact with those springs, the buses would go. Now, we weren't on the bus when this happened, but we saw it where this one bus... Had, uh, was going around a corner too wide. They don't have a track on the ground. They've just got to kind of follow a line to make sure that they stay with the power that's above. 
And one of the drivers had veered, maybe to miss another vehicle or something, but he had veered off his white line he's supposed to follow and went out from underneath the power and uh, the bus just died. It was disconnected. So all the people had to get off the bus and start pushing the bus. Now, they were smart enough, they knew what to do. They had to push the bus back into line where it would be connected with the power. But what would you have thought if they started pushing the bus down a different street where there was no power line? Or if they had started pushing the bus maybe on the right line, but the springs were broken on the bar above so it wasn't making contact? That'd be a whole lot of work to push that bus up a hill when all you've got to do is make sure and connect the the bar. You know, I think sometimes God's church is operating that way. We're trying to move down the road by virtue of everybody pushing the bus when what we really need to do is connect to the power. Everything goes better when you connect to the power. I've been in a lot of church meetings before where we discuss various projects. It might be a building project. It might be an evangelistic project or some program we're going to do. And we might say during that meeting, you know, we're going to have to postpone this program. We're going to have to cancel this project because we just don't have adequate funds. Or we might have to postpone or cancel this project because we don't have enough volunteers. I have never been in a church meeting where someone has said, we need to postpone or cancel this project because we don't have enough of the Spirit. You know what that means? That means we probably go through with all kinds of church programs and machinery and products without the Spirit because we're just bent on pushing it. And really what we need to do is connect with the power above and all kinds of things are possible. I heard one pastor say, it was actually a Baptist preacher, that if the Holy Spirit was completely withdrawn from all of the Protestant churches in North America, you might find next week that they were still gathering and doing 90% of the same things that they always do and they'd never know the difference. Because we're so used to just going through our regiment of church that we don't realize how spiritless it is. If you live back in the days of the apostles, when they were preaching, man, there was a power. Things were happening. People were being healed. There was evidence for the Holy Spirit. Conversions were taking place. Thousands were believing. And preaching of the Spirit can also bring persecution. So why do we need the Holy Spirit? Well, we learned about for understanding the Word, for obeying, for effective praying, and now I'd like to tell you, you need the Holy Spirit to love. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians chapter 5. Among other things, what's the first one? The fruit of the Spirit is tongues. Is that what it says? Have you ever heard someone say, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues? You ever heard that? I have. I was riding down, I was hitchhiking down a road, actually it was near Riverside, California. I was hitchhiking to 30 years ago by myself. Oh, actually, I take it back. I had a girlfriend with me. And I uh, just want to be honest. And uh, uh, on the road for a long time, and this lady stopped and picked us up. Nice, looked like a church lady. 
by herself, you know, 50, 60 years old, and picked us up, and as we were going down the road, we somehow mentioned that, yeah, we were hungry, and we didn't have any money, and she said, well, let me take you home and get you something to eat. And I remember as she was driving us to her house, she said, are you Christians? And we said, yeah, because I was reading the Bible at that point. My girlfriend came, grew up in a Christian home, and we said, yeah, we're Christians. She said, have you received the Holy Spirit? I'm a baby Christian. This is the first time anyone had asked me that way. And I thought, well, that's a very good question. And I thought to myself, well, the Lord has helped me quit stealing and cursing and making a bunch of changes in my life. I think I was still smoking at the time, but I had quit drinking and drugs and a lot of things had changed. And so I said to her, well, I think I do have the Holy Spirit because God's making all these changes in my life and I just feel like it's the Spirit. Let me stop right here and say something. Don't lose your track on the story. One of the most powerful evidences for me that God's Spirit came into my life had to do with cursing. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I grew up in a family where part of my native vocabulary was cursing. My mother cursed around us, just as profane as it could be. My father cursed. My mother was worse than my father. My father cursed us. He was in the military, so he could curse like that. My grandmother, my Jewish grandmother, could curse in several languages. <laughs> and she just it didn't even think about it. Matter of fact, one day after I became a pastor, true story, I'm in Sacramento Central. She and my grandfather came to church. And one of the other pastors there decided to have a testimony service. And my grandparents are very gregarious and outgoing, and even though it was the first time they'd ever visited our church, once they saw there was a microphone going around, they raised their hands, both of them. And the pastor went over to hand them the microphone, and I went, oh no. <laughs> and without even realizing it, she said, yeah, we're so proud of Dougie, we're, this is, I'm his grandma, and, and then she cursed. <laughs> they said, oh, he was such a blankety-blank when he was growing up, but he's turned in such a nice young man. <laughs> and everyone's sitting there going, we're glad you're visiting, you know. <laughs> they took it, our church took it in stride, but, uh, and I'm just there going, oh, Grandma. <laughs> so, when I became a Christian, and I realized I had this real problem. And I would use God's name in vain, among other things. I know all the words. I said, Lord, I don't know how I'm ever going to start sounding like a Christian unless you just help me. I realized I've got this problem. I'd never realized how filthy my language was. Will you please forgive me? And when you please, help me. And that to me was the greatest evidence that the Holy Spirit is real. Because all of a sudden I found I'd be talking to somebody and one of these other words that were part of my regular native vocabulary would be just about to come out and it was like this divine emergency break. And I just went, er! I said, oh, I can't say that. And I'd find another appropriate word. And I'd be talking, er! And, I'd say, I'd be, and just, it's like he kept just pulling up on the brake whenever I got ready to say one of those things. I didn't know how to do it. The Holy Spirit was in my mind saying, Delete, 
delete. He was editing everything I was saying. And I, I've never forgotten that. The Holy Spirit was so real to me at that point. All right, so this lady says, this old lady picked me up and my girlfriend, taking us over to her house for something to eat. Have you received the Holy Spirit? I said, well, I think I have. And because God's making these changes. And she said, I don't mean that. She said, do you speak in tongues? And to me, it really stunned me that the criteria that she was interested in for my receiving the Holy Spirit had to do with babbling as opposed to victory over sin. And while I do believe in the gift of tongues, I believe that, I th- you've probably heard the story, uh, some of you maybe heard me tell, because I, I shared this in one of our net meetings, that I, I prayed one time, I picked up a Mexican hitchhiker by myself in Deming, New Mexico, my Spanish was the equivalent of ordering a Taco Bell. I mean, I know very little Spanish. I think I flunked Spanish in, in Catholic school. And uh, I picked up a hitchhiker who didn't speak any English, and I prayed that God would give me the gift of tongues, and it was rough. But by the time I got to, we drove together for three days. By the time I got to Northern California, I was communicating freely with him, He ended up living with us and he got baptized. Here's the hitchhiker named Omar. And I still remember a lot of the words and it's helped me. I mean, I can't fluently speak Spanish, but I I can understand most of it now. But it came to me during that trip. And so that to me is the gift of tongues. Um, And that's the purpose of it. But the disciples, when they got the gift of tongues at Pentecost, it wasn't haltingly. I mean, when I started learning Spanish while I was driving with this guy, words would come to me. For one thing, I thought, well, Spanish is kind of like English, except you just say O or A at the end of every word. And so, you know, I said to him, I'm driving my truckle (laughs) to California. It's already a Spanish word. He understood that. We're going, and I remember the word montañas, yeah. And then we were driving down the road. He sort of understood me and he gave me some funny faces sometimes. <laughs> and he would correct me. He'd say, I'd say a word wrong, he'd say it right, and then I'd remember it. And next time I'd say something, I'd remember And my vocabulary just was like speed learning. And, uh, but I do remember one time I wondered if he was hungry. And I said, uh, get us some uh, dinero? I figured dinner is food and dinero would be <laughs> Spanish for food. He said, gee. <laughs> oh, back to my story. Yeah, so anyway, I think I really made my point. My point being that speaking in tongues is not the fruit of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues is one of the gifts of the Spirit, and it's always at the bottom of the list in the gifts of the Spirit, isn't it? It's an, it is a gift. I do believe in it. But when people go to church and they say, that the, the real way that you prove you've got the Holy Spirit is by babbling incoherently in some tongue that nobody understands. That is not the gift of tongues that you find in the Bible. Now, I've, I've mentioned this twice. I know we have some new people because in Acts chapter 2, people talk about the evidence that you're full of the Spirit. They always talk about tongues. You're going to hear it on TV all the time. Have you heard that? You know what also really surprised me? A lot of these televangelists that speak in tongues on TV. And they'll be just right in the middle of this sermon. They'll just be, you know, a Honda, Kawasaki, Suzuki, Yamaha. And they'll start you know, talking about it like that. And 
And then someone will stand up and they'll translate or, or interpret it for them. And, and they say they've got the gift of tongues, but they travel overseas. And whenever Jimmy Swaggart or Jimmy Baker or any of these guys travel overseas and they preach, they always have an army of translators. Always. Isn't there something wrong with that? They've got the gift of tongues, and what do you need all these translators for? And that's not the gift of tongues that you find in the Bible. Gift of tongues is when all of a sudden you're supernaturally able to speak in a language that you didn't know before, that God gives you the ability. Or some people are gifted lingually, and Paul says, if someone speaks in tongues, if I should right now start preaching to you in Hebrew and say, Probably, unless there's a few Hebrews up here, you know a few Jewish prayers, you didn't get anything out of it. Paul said there should be a translator, an interpreter. And you shouldn't do it by more than two or three. So if there's two or three language groups here, I'd say it in Hebrew, and then someone else would translate for their language group, and someone else would translate for their language group. I've been at meetings before where I had two translators, and it goes a long time every time you say something. That's why he said no more than two or three. He's talking to the Corinthian church that was Roman slaves from all over the Roman Empire, spoke all these different languages. They had problems with language and communication in the church. had nothing to do with this heavenly prayer language or the language of angels, as they call it, where people just start babbling. That actually comes from pagan religions. Many pagan religions of the world, when they are filled with the spirits, begin to babble in the language of the gods, they say. It's done in voodoo. Have you ever seen a person go into a trance-like state and start to babble? You ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? Ever heard of the Oracle of Delphi? Well, you know what they did there. This uh, Sybil, she was called a Sybil, she was part of the temple priest. She would be by the cave of Delphi where volcanic vapors came out. She'd inhale these vapors. She'd go into a trance. She'd begin to babble incoherently. And then the priest would take the question from the petitioner and say, I will go consult the Sibyl, and the priest would listen to her babbling, he would come back with the translation of that. That's exactly what's happening in charismatic churches. I used to go there, that's where I went. And I remember one pastor, every time he'd start preaching, halfway through the sermon, his wife would stand up, she'd start speaking in tongues, and she'd sit down. And then he'd say, oh, thus saith the Lord. He'd translate what she had said in tongues. And I was thinking, why didn't God just say it in English the first time? Why does he have to say something babbling like that? Or they talk about the heavenly prayer language. Have you heard about the heavenly prayer language? That you're praying in tongues. Have you heard about praying in tongues? Show me one example of somebody praying in tongues in the Bible. Isn't it dangerous to build a doctrine on something with no biblical support? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 16 what the purpose of the gift of tongues is. He told the twelve apostles... I'm sending you into all the world. You will speak with other tongues. What's the fulfillment? Acts chapter 2. They're given the ability to speak in other tongues. Why? There are Jews visiting from every nation in the Roman Empire on the day of Pentecost. They hear the gospel. During that feast, they've come to this feast from all over the Roman Empire. It names 16 different language groups. They hear it in their own tongue. They then take the gospel back to the respective nations. It was genius for God to do it that way, instantly spreading the gospel to all these languages because the disciples had the Rosetta software, (laughs) the ability to translate in all these different languages. Okay, so we need the Holy Spirit for love. When you love the Lord, you want to obey Him. 
The Spirit will give you victory. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, so forth. We need the Holy Spirit for peace and for comfort. That's one of the next points that I want to emphasize here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Jesus said, It's expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Comforter will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So one of the names for the Holy Spirit is He is the Comforter. He brings us peace and comfort. Have you ever been in a very stressful situation and all of a sudden this peace came over you that didn't make any sense because you should have been extremely nervous or extremely worried. A situation was out of control, but you had this peace that just God was just bringing His presence into a room. I've been in hospital rooms where someone was dying, but they were believers. And the family gathered around and where you would expect there'd be great uh, sadness and tragedy, Everybody said, we just feel the peace of God, and including the party that might be dying. They said, I just feel God's peace. And it's the Holy Spirit that can bring that kind of comfort into a situation. I've been in situations before where I was surrounded by people who were hostile to what I believe and uh, felt threatened, didn't know what I was going to say, and I said, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to answer them. I'd like to win them to you. And it's just a very stressful situation. All of a sudden... This peace comes over me, and God's, I, my heart slows down, my hand is steady, and all of a sudden I just know the Holy Spirit has come into me because God is going to help me know what to say. So he brings you a peace and a comfort. Acts 9.31 The churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Peace and comfort. They were multiplied. Now, someone asked me a good question yesterday. Does the Holy Spirit bring unity? We're going to take some questions in a little bit here. want to save time for that. Does the Holy Spirit bring unity? Suppose you're in a church where there's division over a different doctrinal point. Will the Holy Spirit have everybody agree on some divided doctrine? No, God's Spirit brings truth. And sometimes the truth is a sword. The Holy Spirit will bring unity among believers and there might be differences on the non-essentials. I believe that the Holy Spirit will give unity to a group. You might have different interpretations on the seven trumpets or Daniel chapter 11. or You know, there's some things like that. Ella White says we shouldn't be arguing about the 144,000. And we can have unity on those things that are not salvation issues and not really profound doctrinal issues, but when it comes to some of these uh, important doctrines, taking a stand for those principles, you can still be spirit-filled and there can be division uh, because someone is maybe bringing in heresy and if you're spirit-filled, you're going to point it out. Was Paul full of the Holy Spirit when he confronted Peter for behaving in a racially discriminating way with the Jewish believers in Galatia. You know the scripture I'm talking about? Oh, someone might have argued, well, Paul, where's that Holy Spirit you're supposed to have? Just love and be united with Peter. Paul said, you know, I, the Spirit told me to confront him because what he's doing is inappropriate. They were brethren. And Peter repented. And then Peter spoke well of Paul, didn't he? In Second uh, Peter. And so, sometimes the Holy Spirit is going to be confronting in that way. And, but it does bring peace. We need the Holy Spirit for cleansing. Romans 5.16 
that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And again, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. So, what does the Spirit want to do? He wants to justify. We ultimately will be glorified. But what comes between justification and glorification? What does sanctification mean? The Lord wants us to live holy lives. He wants us to live godly lives. And so, how do you receive sanctification? How can you resist temptation? We are sanctified right there by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It just kind of cuts through everything. You know, it's one thing if you wash your hands with soap. If you're a man or woman, you've done some mechanic work, you take apart a differential or something with that 90-weight grease, and you put it back together with all those old, that brake dust and those uh, grease that's built up on the road, and you get done putting that away and you walk inside the house, regular ivory soap is not going to work. When I was growing up, we used to have a soap called lava. Does anyone remember lava? It was made with volcanic pumice and they called it lava. It worked better than ivory. But since then, they've developed something called goop. It's kind of orange. Any of you men know what I'm talking about? Goop? That's good stuff, boy. You just, your hands look absolutely black and filthy. I mean, it's like under the fingernails, it's in the cuticles, it's in every little, your fingerprints are all standing out in bold relief because you just got every nook and cranny has got dirt in it. You take that stuff, I don't know what's in it. Probably hydrochloric acid or something. <laughs> but you rub your hands vigorously, lad, you put them under the water, and it's a miracle that happens. How it cleanses the Holy Spirit will cleanse your life, but you need to reach out for it. You've got to take it. You need to apply the water and, and uh, use it. You've got to utilize it to experience that. So we need the Holy Spirit for cleansing. Number seven out of 63. I don't really have 63. We need the Holy Spirit for guidance. Now, a lot of people ask questions. How do we know the will of God? I've got to make difficult decisions. How can I know God's will? Well, you want to be spirit-led, don't you? Uh, I've got a book you can, I think I mentioned that you can download for free. It talks about how to know the will of God. And it talks about some things that you can do practically to determine the will of God. But you know what the number one thing on the list is? Jesus said, if any man is willing to do my will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. The greatest battle in knowing the will of God is being completely surrendered to do whatever it is he asks you to do. I remember one time I got invited to work on a mission. It was a Navajo mission out in the middle of dirt in New Mexico. And uh, I told a friend, I'll stop and look on my way back to Texas, but I, I had another call and I said, but I thought to myself, there's no way in the world I'm going to that mission. When the day I stopped pulling a trailer with the family, little uh, trailer behind the car, 
as I pulled into the mission yard to look at this mission, I just was going to shake hands, have prayer, and go down the road because there's no way I was going to that mission. Out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I had already lived on the Navajo Reservation when I was 16. And uh, I knew it could be very discouraging because a lot of alcoholism, a lot of problems. Pulled into the mission yard. As I pulled into the mission yard, my trailer wheel fell off my trailer. I had just driven 2,000 miles. It decided to fall off. The, the, the seal had actually just completely worn off. I didn't know it. It fell off as I pulled in. It was a unique trailer. It was going to take a couple days to get the axle fixed and the bearings and everything I needed. I had to stay there for two days. During that two days, God impressed me, and that's where I was supposed to go. So sometimes God, to be careful what you tell the Lord you're going to do. Uh, you, you, want to, uh, you want to say, Lord, I'm open to the leading of your spirit. Because he can also then use providence if you're not going to listen to the spirit. We need the Spirit for guidance. On the ancient ships, before they had GPS, they not only had a compass by the steering wheel, that compass by the steering wheel was sometimes influenced by other iron objects and you could get a false reading. You get some sailor who's standing around with a big rodeo belt buckle or uh, you've got you know, some other iron a tool or something that might be set down near the compass. There are planes that have been totally thrown off course because they set something by the compass. I got a little Cessna 182 and and uh, compass is right up there on the dash. And one time I shoved something up there. I was flying. All of a sudden I'm off course. I put a pair of headphones up there that have magnets in them. And I'd been going the wrong way because my compass was off because I had some interference with the compass. These old ships had a lower compass and they had a higher compass up on the mast. And sometimes when they were taking a reading and they wanted a real accurate reading, they'd tell the guy up in the crow's nest, give me the reading from the upper compass also. And they'd corroborate the two because the lower compass might get a false reading. Sometimes we say, I think the Spirit's telling me this and that. And we're being influenced by other factors of our bias, our opinions, our influence. Sometimes we can't be objective and when we hear an argument for something... Because it's what we've always believed. And we need to pray for that secondary or that higher compass of God's Spirit and God's Word together to coordinate. We need the Holy Spirit for power. Micah 3, verse 8. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might and declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Zechariah, Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might or by power, but by what? It's not talking about human might or power, but how is God going to accomplish His work? But by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You know, I understand that on one acre of land, one inch of rain on one acre of land produces many tons of water. A little bit can create a lot of power. I think the Holy Spirit is the greatest wasted power in the world. Uh, somebody was standing with a famous pastor by Niagara Falls before they built the hydroelectric generator there and uh, they commented to the pastor, look at all that power. If that power could somehow be utilized, it's just wasted. And the pastor said, that's not the biggest wasted power. The biggest wasted power is the Holy Spirit because it's available to every one of us right now. I'm really into alternative power. Um, 
we have a house up in the hills. You maybe have heard me refer to it. We live in Sacramento, but we have a cabin up in the mountains where uh, 35 years we've had a home up there. And it's totally off the grid, not because we're rebelling against society. It's just they still don't have electricity out there. When I first moved up there, the house was all kerosene. And I'd use, actually, I used diesel instead of kerosene because it's cheaper. And then I got the Coleman lamps. You know those Coleman lamps? You pump them and you use what they call white gas. I've got news for you. Unleaded fuel works in those lamps. Uh, and so I've lived off the grid a long time. Now our house up there, since we built the first house, we burned it down, we built a, a better one because I learned so much more about using the solar power to heat the home from the sun, using the solar power for electric. We've got electric panels up on the roof. We've got a spring and we've got a hill, and so we run water down the hill to this uh, Pelton wheel. It's just an alternator. And water jets out at 90 pounds on two sides of this, spins it faster than a car belt, turns it into, we convert it to 120, run it back up to the house because it's a long distance, you have to convert it to transmit it. It then goes into a battery charger, just a regular battery charger, charges our batteries and we run the house. We got an electric washer, an electric clothes dryer, electric vacuum, microwave, we got all the appliances and it's so neat because we don't get an electric bill. We're just totally off the grid. I've been to the big island of Hawaii several times. It is one of the most unique pieces of real estate in the world. How many of you ever been to the big island? See some Hawaii. Actually, a few weeks ago, we were with Army Bible Camp in Oahu, and I wanted to go over to the big island. Big island's unique because every part of the island is different. One part of the island, of course, it's... Technically, the tallest mountain in the world is Hawaii. If you go from, from the sea bottom, it's like over 30,000 feet. Mauna Loa, Mauna Kea, those two very tall mountains. They've got an observatory up there. Snow on the top. You can snow ski up there and then go surfing the same day. It's amazing. You go to Hilo, it rains all the time. I don't know, they get over 300 inches of rain a year, something like that. Waterfalls, beautiful waterfalls, if you can ever catch a sunny day. And uh, then you go down to the south end of the island, they've got the volcanic park. You go to Waimea, where the lava is just coming out of the ground. You go to Waimea, and the wind blows all the time. Over by Kona, a lot more sunshine. That's where the airport is. Sun shines all the time over there. And then you've got some bays up in the north where they've got tides, big tides that are coming in and out. You know what alternate kinds of power can do? You can get power from geothermal. You can get power from solar. You can get power from wind. You can get power from tidal power. You can get power from sun. The big island of Hawaii has the potential for all that different kinds of power. But do you know what they're using to power most of the island? Diesel generators. When I heard that, I couldn't believe it. Now, I think they're switching over now. They're finally starting to go green. I know a lot of homes have solar. Oh, I'm talking about the city. they got all this power. But they don't want to, you know, they don't want to interrupt the geothermal and they don't want to have windmills up because that's an eyesore and they don't want to put in a hydroelectric dam because what if the dam breaks? And, and so they're afraid of, of all these things that... Uh, all this wasted power. It's not the biggest wasted power. Every day of your life, God has all of the resources of heaven available to pour upon us. And He wants us to ask. 
He said, ask, and he'll open the windows of heaven for us and pour out a blessing that we don't have room enough to receive it. You know what I'd like to do is I want to take some time for questions. We're going to take a few minutes of questions, and I want to share a story with you, and then we're going to pray together. But uh, right now, if some of you have questions, here's the ground rules real quick. The questions have to be short. Make sure that your, my, your mouth is just two inches from the microphone. Summarize your question in just one or two sentences. And that makes us, gives us the ability to answer them quickly. And so we'll get as many questions as possible. But of course, questions that deal with the subject of the Holy Spirit is what we're interested in. And uh, if we're ready, and hopefully we've got the microphones on, why don't we go ahead? Hello. You're on. Well, the Bible criteria you find in Galatians chapter 5, it starts with verse 22, itemizing the fruits of the Spirit. And what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, goodness, temperance, self-control, and uh, which one? Patience, yeah. My wife's got all these memorized. I don't have them all memorized. But uh, they're evidenced in the behaviors and the character of a Christian. Now, Jesus said you'll know them by the gifts of the Spirit, which are teaching, hospitality, administration, tongues, so forth, apostles, prophets. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. You don't tell if a person's got the Holy Spirit by the gifts. A person can fake the gifts, but it's really hard to fake the fruits of the Spirit. The love and the peace and the joy and the self-control and the patience and the temperance, that'll be evident in a person's life. A good question. When Jesus comes, is he coming alone or is he coming with the Father? There's silence in heaven, the Bible tells us, because heaven is basically vacated when Jesus comes. He says he's coming with some of the angels or all the angels. So you've got all the angels. You've got God the Father. The reason we know he's coming with God the Father, it says Christ is coming on the right hand of power. What power could be greater than Christ? Only the Father. So the fact that he's coming in the glory of the Father, uh, the Holy Spirit will be present. What will the Holy Spirit look like? I have no idea, but I don't see the Holy Spirit having a physical body form. He is a difficult person of the Godhead to comprehend or to visualize. Something of a mystery, a little ethereal for us. Yes? Put my elephant ears on. Yeah, that's. Yeah, 
I don't know if you heard the whole presentation. A little earlier, I talked about that, that there's a number of Adventists out there, and I don't know specifically who the person might be in Australia. There's plenty in North America. They're, they're all over the place. They really struggle with not only the Holy Spirit being a separate person. They think the Holy Spirit is simply how God the Father and Son reveal themselves to us. And their big struggle is because they have trouble visualizing him as a person. They also believe that Jesus is begotten, meaning that he was created, which means Jesus is not divine, which is, I think, a very dangerous teaching. Because if Jesus is a creature, uh, it, it destroys a lot of... If, if there was a day when God the Father created Jesus, and that's what they believe. They think that Jesus had a beginning, but the Bible says he's everlasting to everlasting. If all things that were made were made by Christ, then how did he make himself? And if God is love, and you can't have love without having someone to love, how could God be loved through these ceaseless ages with no one to love? But God the Father, Son, and Spirit are eternal from everlasting to everlasting. So there's several problems with the beliefs of this group. And yeah, they're, they're all, all over. They don't believe the Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, I just take the words of Jesus at face value. He refers to the Holy Spirit as He. And it's got all of the definitions of a personality. Thank you. That person. Okay. Um, the Holy Spirit comes in different degrees. You might be in living in sin, totally away from church. You could be, uh, you know, in a bar and be overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit telling you you're convicted. It's the Holy Spirit that even gives us conviction of sin. Isn't that right? That makes us want to repent and be new creatures. So the Holy Spirit might be working in the lives of people everywhere. You know, God said there in Genesis 6, my spirit will not always strive with man. What that means is before the flood, his spirit was striving with man to save him. It's God's spirit strives with us all through our lives. The Lord is long-suffering. So the spirit comes in different degrees. He tries to get our attention from the outside. Being filled with the spirit is having him really on the inside. But God's spirit will give you wisdom on how to share and witness to your friend as well. All right, does this mean one more question? Okay. Hello. Hi. Um, I have someone asking, how do you know that the Holy Spirit is in the church? Um, and so, my thought was the Holy Spirit is in the people, but I wasn't really sure of the. Uh, All right, that's a good question. Um, when I read the Bible, I find the Holy Spirit generally manifests Himself through individuals, but there are times where a group of people got together. You could call them the church. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5, and I told you yesterday, Numbers chapter 11, where a group of people were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord came on the sons of the prophets on different occasions. So to say whether or not the Holy Spirit is with the Adventist church, I, I have no question in my mind the Holy Spirit is moving the Adventist church. That doesn't mean that every branch or faction or division in the Holy Spirit of the church is spirit-led. You know what I'm saying? And there are individuals, obviously, that are in the church that are spirit-filled, and there are some that have less. Uh, I believe there are people who maybe have their names on the book of our church that have grieved away the Holy Spirit. No, I mean, I would never point to that person and say, I think this is a person. 
Most times people worry about committing the unpardonable sin and they haven't. But um, it is something that Jesus warns us against. The person can grieve away the Spirit and still be alive. King Saul did. Judas did. All right. Yes, question. Yeah, get closer to the microphone. The theme this year is to fill me with the Spirit. Okay, good question. Uh, I talked briefly in our presentation yesterday morning, I believe it was, that obviously sin is an obstacle to the outflowing of the Spirit. Uh, The apostles, when they were of one accord, in one place, they had repented of their sins and they felt an urgency. So having having the Holy Spirit means that we've just really got a hunger and thirst for it and that God can give it to us. so sin, and the, sin is an obstacle to the flow of the Spirit in the church. Yes, question. And let's, we probably better stop with the third one back there so we'll have time for prayer. Offending them? And... Yeah, it's, it's a sensitive thing. If you've got friends that speak in tongues, and I do, um, and you tell them that that's not the Holy Spirit, what's the alternative? Uh, one thing that I've said is I, I tell my friends that uh, you know the Lord brings us through all kinds of different experiences to grow us. And why don't you study this and pray about it and say, Lord, if this is not of you, I won't share his name because I'll let him do it, but I know a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. He is he's actually a Jewish pastor too, but he was a charismatic Christian. He spoke in tongues. And when he learned the Adventist message, he said, what are you telling me? This is not the truth. And someone asked him to pray. And they said, you just pray and say, Lord, if this is not of you, take it away. And he always prayed in tongues, too. He spoke in tongues, prayed in tongues. It felt so good. And he said, Lord, if this is not of you, take it away. And he said, God took it away. He never did it again. And um, so it's a difficult thing because you're basically saying this thing you call the Holy Spirit is not. They think for us to say that is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So it really puts you back on your heels when someone says, if you're telling me that what I've got is not the Holy Spirit, you are about to commit the unpardonable sin. That makes you take a double take, doesn't it? Who wants to commit the unpardonable sin or even risk it? And so it's dangerous to tell the truth on this subject. or scary anyway. But we've got to be faithful. Book, it's free if you want to download it. Amazing facts. It's called Understanding Tongues. I've got a whole study that I put in there on what the Bible says and doesn't say about speaking in tongues. You can share that with them. We've tried to do it in a tasteful way. Thank you. My question is this. Should we in the church um, have the ability or should the church as the body of Christ be able to feel to work divine miracles because, you know, the Bible says that we are the body of Christ and, you know, we have these gifts of apostleship and, you know, all the gifts yeah. that And if we don't have it, is that evidence that we don't have as the church of God, we don't have 
I'd be embarrassed for you all to know how many times I've gone to a funeral and wondered if I should try and resurrect, try and resurrect somebody. <laughs> and because I believe the Bible when I read it, you know, and I read about where Peter went to Dorcas's funeral and he said, you know, they chased everybody out and knelt down and prayed, and that's happened several times in the Bible. Elisha, Elijah knelt down and prayed, and Jesus went in, chased out the mourners, and said, uh, "Little girl, get up." Um, but then I thought, you know, what if it didn't work? I just turn around and say to people, I wouldn't try, sorry. <laughs> you know, it could be kind of embarrassing. So that could be really awkward for the family. Uh, I, I would hope I'd never try that. I, I would hope you'd never do that unless the Spirit impressed you. Um, I believe in healing. Quick story. Have a lady in our church um, suffered something that appeared to be a very serious stroke. This just happened two months ago. Went to the hospital, was I ICU, no brain activity. There several days, met with the family. She's on a ventilator, no brain activity, MRI. And they said, and this is right over Thanksgiving actually, they said, should we disconnect? You know, they're discussing this very difficult decision. Should we disconnect and, and just basically get together, pray, say goodbye to mom and grandma? And we had prayer. Next day, they took her off the ventilator. She started talking. She started sitting up. And we thought, oh, you know, she'll be a vegetable. She was in church last week and I was talking to her. And she remembers, she's, she's back. But, I mean, it, to, to us it was a miracle because they basically were ready to sign her off and disconnect her and she would have died. But we prayed and we waited and she was back in church on her own power last week. Talking. No, no side effects of a stroke. Wasn't limping around or anything. And it was just, it's amazing. It's a miracle. So I believe in prayer. And I think there are more miracles than we hear about. Uh, I think we hear about miracles and we're all a little bit jaded and cynical. And we go, no, no, that's probably exaggerated. And they always come from some distant mission field. So how can you really check that? I think sometimes they have more faith in the mission fields. And so they see more miracles in these places. But miracles come in waves. I've got a sermon online you can watch for free called Signs and Wonders and Miracles. I just went through this. Miracles come through waves in Bible history. And you'll see that when God's Spirit flows like a tide, sometimes it comes in and you'll see a lot more happening. It happened with the apostles. Usually in connection with great revival evangelistic work, you'll notice the miracles come together. Because why did Jesus do miracles? So people would believe the preaching. Why did God give the apostles power in miracles? So they would believe their teaching and their preaching. As we get more involved in evangelism, God, I think, will uh, ratify the message with more miracles, signs and wonders. So I'm expecting to see that again. Thank you. Good question. That's a good question. Why do we need the Holy Spirit to help us in intercession for somebody? You know, I think God appreciates our being specific. And sometimes it's hard for us to know how to intercede or pray specific, uh, specifically for somebody. And the Lord will maybe lay something on our hearts. Um, you know, we have five children, six grandchildren, and they're all at different places. And we pray for specific needs. Sometimes God's Spirit will lay specific things on our hearts. And as parents, we intercede for them. You can see in the Bible, 
where Jesus interceded and prayed for the apostles. And he prayed for their unity. That was something specific they were having a challenge with. Job prayed for his sons, and the Spirit led him to intercede. Unless they've cursed God in their hearts, they may have been having doubts about their faith. He would offer sacrifice, and he prayed and interceded for them. And so I think the Spirit guides us about what specifically we need to pray about. And um, am I answering kind of what you're asking? Pretty much. Okay, that's all right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And let me tell you a story. And then we're going to break up and uh, we're, we're going to have prayer. Some of you maybe have heard the story about Andersonville. In Fort Sumter, it was Fort Sumter, it was a prison of war camp that the South had uh, of the northern soldiers. And it was the most infamous of the POW camps. It was there in Georgia, I believe. Um, extremely hot in the summer. The camp had originally been built to hold like, you know, five or 8,000 prisoners. By the end of the war, they had 30,000 prisoners crammed in so tight that they could barely find a place to lay down. Just they were man next to man, like sardines in a can. Most of them didn't have any tents or shielding from the, um, the cold. Keep in mind, by the end of the Civil War, the South was out of supplies for their soldiers. They had nothing for their prisoners of war. And so they were just, they were, you could read about it, but it's, it's just really tragic what they had to live on. Scraps and bugs and worms, and they were dying daily. Thousands and thousands died. Just to give you an idea of how bad conditions were in Andersonville, after the Civil War, just when it ended, before Lincoln was assassinated, he prayed that we could all forgive and have mercy as a nation and let the wounds heal. There was one person that was tried, convicted, and hung for war crimes of the Civil War. It was the warden of Andersonville. Because what he allowed to happen there was so grossly in, inhumane. In the wintertime, these men were just out there exposed to the rain and the snow and the frost out in the open, just freezing. In the summertime, hot, humid Atlanta days, they would just be baking. Now, to compound their misery, they had no water in the camp. The only source of water that they had was a little stream that ran outside of the camp through the camp in the barn of the horses. It ran through the dwelling of the guards. It was basically the sewage from the guards and their animals. They allowed that to run into the camp and that was the only thing they were allowed to drink. And it was just... It was just an inhumane experience, and so many of them died from um, malaria and from dysentery principally. And now many of these boys had grown up in Christian homes, and they did a lot of praying. And you would be thinking, how could God be in a place like that? You know, wouldn't that make you lose faith in God? But at one point, especially in this last summer, there in August. It was especially hot. I don't know if you've been in Georgia where it's 90 degrees and it's humid and you're out exposed in the sun with no shelter and many of them didn't even have but just rags of their uniform left. They got together, all the prisoners, they were all dying off and they said, we need to pray. It had not rained for weeks. 
the foul rivulet of water that was running through their camp was just uh, undrinkable. They're dying of thirst. They're filthy. They've got disease. And they said, we need to pray for rain. The sky was completely clear. All these men got together and they knelt in the middle of the camp and they prayed for hours specifically that God would send rain, cleanse the camp, and save them. And in the middle of their praying, a cloud began to form overhead. You ever seen a little white puffy cloud start to just come out of nowhere? And it got bigger and it got bigger and pretty soon it began to swirl and it turned into a big thunderhead. Thunderheads go up, you know, 30,000, 60,000 feet. And right over the camp, lightning began to flash and crack and rain began to just pour in torrents. And it began to pour also on the garden section and the camp. And it was what they call a gully washer, if you know what I mean by that. It's not where you just get the ground soaked. It means it's just things start to run everywhere. And it just began, it completely flushed out the camp The men were all out there rejoicing, drinking the water in, praising God. They had a great celebration. They were wringing out and cleansing their clothes because it just poured and it poured and it poured. And in the middle of that rainstorm, a tremendous bolt of lightning struck down in the middle of this camp and several miracles occurred. Eventually the rain stopped. The camp was flushed clean. Even the guards were amazed because they, they saw all these soldiers praying and God just directly sent rain as a result of their prayer. And several miracles occurred. One miracle was as, when they prayed, the rain came and there was no clouds in the sky. Another miracle occurred in that the rain appeared directly over the camp and it rained on them. Another miracle occurred in that the rain was of a quantity that it not only flushed out the camp, it gave them all something to drink from the rain and it helped them wash Another miracle occurred in that lightning struck in the middle of the camp and even though the men were crowded shoulder to shoulder, where the lightning struck, no man was standing at that moment. And the other miracle was where the lightning struck, a spring appeared in the camp that continues to run to this day that supplied fresh water to the men for the rest of the Civil War. And it came and it's called now that you can go to where the Andersonville prison is and there's a sign there that says Providence Spring. As a result of prayer, all of that happened. Has God changed? Or will he send those refreshing showers if we pray? And I think, but you know what made a difference for those men in the POW camp? How sincere were they when they prayed? How thirsty were they? What does Jesus promise? He that hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be filled. How thirsty are you for the Holy Spirit? You know what I think God's going to send the Spirit? When we're desperate. Are you desperate for God to fill you? Were the disciples desperate for Christ to send the Comforter when He gave them Pentecost? If we have a conference like this and we sort of think, yeah, it'd be nice to have the Holy Spirit, I wonder what that would be like. Probably not going to happen. But if we really as a people, as young people, as a church, are desperate for the Holy Spirit to do the work God has given us to do, then we might expect something to happen. God wants to be wanted. You know, I've discovered in my years of marriage, sometimes my wife still plays hard to get. She'll test me a little bit and I'll say, I'm going on this trip. Would you like to go? And she'll kind of hem and haw. 
And I just was like, well, tell me, you know, if you want to go. She wants me to say, I really want you to go. <laughs> she wants to go, but she wants me to, she wants to know, do you really want me to go? God wants to be wanted. The devil will break into your life. Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. He won't even reach for the doorknob. He wants you to open it. He wants you to want him. He wants you to love him. And if you want him and you search for him with all your heart, if you're desperate for God, if you're hungry and you're thirsting for God, you might expect something to happen. How many of you would like to pray right now that God gives us that latter rain, that refreshing of his spirit? Is that your desire? Tell you what then, as we close this section of meetings, why don't we uh, do what we've done before. Let's gather in groups of just two or three so that you can pray. Introduce yourself to the people in your group. And then why don't we pray together specifically that God will give us his spirit. And if nothing more, give us that desperate desire for his spirit. Can you say amen? And then after we pray, we'll be dismissed. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.